Victoria Woodhull is easily one of the most interesting people in American history. Along with her sister Tenny Claflin, she took America by storm in the 1870s. She preached insanely radical and progressive sexual politics with a style of oratory that was, by all accounts, an incredible thing to listen to and behold. She was the first woman to speak to Congress on the subject of women's suffrage. She and her sister were the first female stockbrokers on Wall Street, and she was the first woman to run for president decades before women would even be given the right to vote. She advocated for women's sexual pleasure, women's right to their own bodies, and to divorce their husbands, and the decriminalization of prostitution. And she did it all under the influence and guidance of supernatural forces. She was, by her own admission, both a spiritualist medium and at the height of her fame, she began promoting distinctly occultist ideas. I love Victoria Woodhall. She's one of my favorite people, and her career really helps us to dig into that mystical overlap of subversive politics and supernatural power to bring about women's empowerment. Today, we are going to try to make sense of one particular speech she gave articulating her grandest and highest spiritually inspired vision of the social elevation of women and the union of the sexes. She gave this speech at the top of her fame, which just so happened to be the end of her public career. It was called the elixir of life, and promised its listeners that they could bring about an apocalypse, blending the spiritual and terrestrial worlds into one perfect union of souls and allowing all people on Earth to literally become immortal. It's crazy ambitious and crazy fascinating. So let's go ahead and get going as we work to elicit Victoria Woodhull's occult confession. My name is Rob C. Thompson. I am the supreme hierophant of our sacred order of alchemical actors. I'm joined by our grandmaster, Olivia Literal. Hello. And uh, Jacob Wheatley joining us at the mic. Yo, yo, yo. So what's up, guys? You ready for Victoria? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just feel like, you know, we know a lot about her at this point with you. you you've, you've heard of her. You've heard tell. Well, I've... The well, we're saying that we're re-recording these, right? Ultimately, but it's not fun for people if we keep talking about it. Well, I was just gonna say, I, <laughs> didn't I voice her the, when we first did it? Uh, I'm pretty sure. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> well, you're actually on it this time. Yeah. Well, I was on it last time too, but you had me do her voice for oh, some that's reason. That's too much. Well, we'll, we'll do yeah. that different this time. Well, we're not going to use any of that, Luke. Um. No, my point, my point was, we know a lot about her from like you just have taught us a lot about her. I I, yeah, I do talk about Woodhall a, a fair amount. She's a radical figure, first woman to run for president. I mean, this is a big deal. Woman power, woman power. Mm -hmm. We, the members of the secret, secret order, order of alchemical actors, actors, do solemnly commit ourselves to a full and understanding of the history of the occult as far as, far as we know it. Know it. Not, not bad. Not too bad. I felt like I kept hopping in between the two of you. It's <laughs> <laughs> fine. <laughs> Gotta just jump on that train. Yeah. All right. So first, let's get to know who Woodhull is and where she came from. The greatest source of information comes from Theodore Tilton, a one-time close friend of Woodhull's who published a biography in the form of a pamphlet in 1872 when public curiosity about Woodhull was at its peak. She was born in Berlin Heights, Ohio on September 23, 1838, at a time period in Ohio where this is basically pioneer territory. Tilton described her infancy and childhood as swaddled in respectable poverty, although she was worked like a slave and whipped like a convict. Her father was abusive, and her mother had strong bipolar tendencies, and her whole family, except for Woodhull herself and her sister, Tennessee, evidently suffered from the same mental disease. During the period of her fame, she relied on, uh, she was relied on for her money, so the family was often coming to her with their hands out, uh, but they oddly also slandered her in the press and brought her to court while continuing to leech off of her success. Tilton had a nice way of describing her relationship with her family. Victoria is a green leaf, and her legion of relatives are caterpillars who devour her. Their sin is that they return no thanks after meat. They curse the hand that feeds them. What do you guys make of that family situation? That's kind That's of a, a mood. dick mood to be like, <laughs> give me your money, and then just like trashing them. And Isn't that family you. though? <laughs> yeah. To be fair, just I live mine? It every no, day. I'm just kidding. No, no. <laughs> my, my my family does the same thing to me every day. <laughs> Starting you know, to feel a collective. Extended mood today. family is kinda 
you know, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, this was siblings and her mother and father, so it was extended, right. but also her immediate family. I guess the oh, mental yeah. illness thing was, was my mood, I was oh, saying, really. Uh, like, okay. <laughs> same. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Woodhull only attended school for about three years, which is not so strange for a country girl before the standardization of public education, but she received additional tutoring from the spirit realm. She had a 25-year-old nurse by the name of Rachel Scribner who died, and on that day, the day of her death, Rachel's spirit came to fetch Victoria and carry her off to the spirit world, where she witnessed apocalyptic visions of hell on earth, but also resurrection and utopia, and she learned that she would be instrumental in changing the world. Then, at the age of 14, she became seriously ill and was attended by a doctor named Canning Woodhall, who ultimately proposed marriage. Anxious to get away from her family, who were equally anxious to bring a doctor into the family, she said okay. But Woodhull turned out to be a womanizer and a drunk, her new husband, Canning Woodhall, that is, and he spent most of his time in brothels and delivered their first child while, according to Woodhall, he was in a half-drunk stupor. In 15 months after her marriage, while living in a little low-frame house in Chicago, in the dead of winter with icicles clinging to her bedpost, and attended only by her half-drunk husband, she brought forth in almost mortal agony her firstborn child. Her child begotten in drunkenness and born in squalor was a half-idiot predestined to be a hopeless imbecile for life. Immediately after delivering the baby, Canning went out drinking again. Victoria sat bleeding on the bed for hours before dragging herself to the wall of her subdivided house and banging on it to rouse her neighbor to come over and assist her. She wasn't sure if Canning's poor medical performance at the birth or his general drunkenness during conception were to blame for her son's disability, but she knew firsthand by the age of 16 the ills of 19th century marriage laws, which made it difficult for her to separate from her neglectful, money-squandering, philandering husband. Yeah, fuck Yikes. that, dude. In San Francisco, she took a job as a cigar girl, but was too, and I quote, blushing, modest, and sensitive for the job. So a cigar girl was sort of like, you know, you're, you're walking around, you know, trying to flirt with like, the men. Like, um, what are they called? Bottle service, right? Kind of? Yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. But you're carrying phallic objects that people light on fire. Yeah, okay, yeah, sure. <laughs> That's what I meant, I guess. Oh, wait, is it like shot girls or something? No, 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 no. What is it? No, like, well, I I don't know. I almost was one, but I can't Same. remember what it was called. <laughs> well, you would have been I, better than me. The shot, you, <laughs> the shot girls were the are the ones that go around the bar trying to get you to drink expensive liquor, mm. right? Isn't that yeah. just the? Okay, isn't that the bartender's job? No. No, there was like a name for it. <laughs> I remember that like. At the pub that I worked at, they were like, well, you're only going to be serving alcohol. And I was like, but but not like pouring it. Just like. You were a cocktail waitress. That's I'm thinking it. like the girls <laughs> think in the that? club that like have the bottles that like they take to certain tables oh. and like, do you know okay, what I mean? Yeah. Like in okay. cities and shit. Yeah, I see what you mean. Like, I guess that's what I'm yeah. saying. Is that like what you're saying? <laughs> kind of. But modern yes. equivalent. Got it. Modern cigar girl. Yeah. Anyway, she didn't do this job for long, although we've just talked about it for quite a while. Yeah, that was a lot. Sorry. <laughs> she uh, moved on to making dresses for an actress named Anna Cogswell, and then hoping to make more money, she decided to take up acting herself. One night while on the boards, clad in a pink silk dress and slippers, acting in the ballroom scene in the Corskin Brothers, suddenly a spirit voice addressed her saying, Victoria, come home. She's like got a lot of skills, this lady. She's a lady of many skills. Well, ultimately, she's going to be a very uh, successful public speaker, so I think she was always destined for the stage in one way or another. It was the spirits mediated through Tenny who had come to fetch Victoria home. Tenny was in bad shape. Tennessee, who ultimately would go by Tenny, uh, she had been working as a healing medium, a profession Victoria was about to take up in Indianapolis, but her father, Reuben Buckman Claflin, also known as Buck, was trading on Tenny's success to market his own miracle cures, which included lye as a remedy for cancer. Do you guys know about lye? Yeah, it's because... Uh... That's like bad. It's bad. <laughs> yeah, it'll like sin it'll like burn off your skin. It's very It's in a lot well, of fun. like Victorian dramas. 
lie? What what do they do with it? What do you mean? Like, to, to scald well, people? Well, because it used to be in like soap and shit. Like yes, it used yeah, to yeah. also, mm-hmm. didn't it? It I wasn't that's one way something to get like clean. medical, right? It was like in something at one point. I can't remember. Heavily diluted. I, yeah, but in soap, it was like, it was like bad. Like yeah. it was like really bad. Not good for I think you. it was soap. Someone can call me out on that. But. In any case, it was not a remedy for cancer, but Buck was essentially, you know, like a you know, traveling medicine show kind of um, uh, con man. In one particularly horrible case, Buck burned off a woman's skin, uh, and they were run out of several towns for this traveling medicine show. So Victoria used her healing mediumship to raise money to help her sister. Victoria starts her own career doing healing, but without her crazy father, because she's married and moved on. Tenny, his, her sister's still working under dad, and dad's freaking insane. So Victoria's doing pretty well, and she's making a lot of money. Tilton says she made nearly $100,000 as a healing medium. <laughs> Jeez. But, but that's insane. That's insane. She did not make $100,000. Okay. Because bear in mind, this is like 1850, 1860. So $100,000 would be like a million dollars. That's what I was going to say. Do you mean in modern or oh, that's a lot? In, in, in 1860s yeah. currency. So yeah, there's no way she made that much money. Um, so big wild exaggeration, but she did make enough money to actually rescue Tenny from their father. She sort of Weird. like- paid her way out of there weird question yeah how why was victoria named victoria and then the other one got tennessee <laughs> tennessee how did the, is there a reason tennessee. that she was like named tennessee i didn't know if you knew but i i just keep thinking like if it's a weird my sister <laughs> name was named victoria and i got tennessee i would be like what happened i mean tenny is cute but i don't know well, ten- Tennessee ch- chose to shorten her name to Tenny. Victoria right. would have been named for Queen Victoria. Uh, well, that everyone was named, named Victoria then. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And at that time period, she was the reigning monarch of England. But um, but how many women were it is different. named after states back then? Except for like Virginia, <laughs> with any state that was named after like a queen, but like Georgia, Georgia. Yeah, I mean, anyway, <laughs> <laughs> anyway. We don't hear Tennessee much anymore, that's true. So I guess they had the folksy name, and then they had the British royalty name. I would think Tennessee would be more common as a name now than then. Ever since Tennessee Williams, I think people are shy of it. Probably. Oh. Well, people just like to name their kids after places, I feel like. <laughs> Madison, Wisconsin. London. Paris, Chicago. <laughs> the list goes on. Yeah. yeah anyway. I can't wait to name my second child Wisconsin. <laughs> Your wife would never <laughs> call her Wissy. Oh my Ooh. God! Oh my. Uh, well, should we, we? We should call her Conson. <laughs> anyway, better. Right around this time, Victoria met her second husband, Colonel James Harvey Blood, who had served on the Union side in the Civil War and was a prominent spiritualist in St. Louis meaning he believed in communication with the spirits of the dead. She promptly divorced Canning and moved with Colonel Blood and her two children and her sister Tenny to New York. In New York is where things really take off for her. Victoria and Tenny continued practicing as mediums, and Tenny acquired arguably the wealthiest man in the country, Cornelius Vanderbilt, as her client. There's a lot of insinuation in subtext, not from Tilton, but from other historians, suggesting that Tenny's healing touch, which she used on Vanderbilt, may have gone a bit beyond just spiritual healing, uh, because Commodore Vanderbilt ultimately decided to front the money for Tenny and Victoria to go into business as Wall Street's very first female stockbrokers yeah these these people they're they're busting that glass ceiling left and right i just can't stop thinking about colonel blood and if i ever met a man with that name i think i i think i just <laughs> I have mean... to jump on that ship right oh you would marry him too just immediately <laughs> yeah yeah i don't think ryan <laughs> would be mad like yeah it sounds terrifying olivia blood married <laughs> oh, to colonel blood <laughs> that's insane that's so good it just sounds like characters in like a board game but I don't actually know if our girl is the type to like. Well, I don't know. Do you think it's true? I guess uh, the sexual rumors with the yeah. Commodore. Impossible to tell. Uh, but it, I mean, we have to bear in mind that like women are often right blamed or mm. I guess denigrated for using sex to get ahead. Yeah. So that is a very long stereotype. So 
it, 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 that's, I think, what makes it impossible for us to know the truth, because that stereotype sort of lingers over top of Tenny and Victoria. These women can't get ahead on their own intelligence or cunning, so they use sex. Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, how they like, you know, with Bathory, they kind of did a similar thing. Like it had to have something to do with seduction and witchcraft. I don't know. I, I will so say sad. that. If Tenny did use sex, though, like, I kind of don't blame her. You don't have a lot of tools in your arsenal when you're a 19th century woman. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, do what you got to do, but it's sad that they kind of just, they blamed it. Right. On yeah. that. Like, that's yeah. Sort of reduces their like, accomplishment. Oh, mm-hmm. Yeah. To be like, instead of, they're just like a smart person in general. Yeah. You know? It couldn't be. Couldn't possibly be. <laughs> a woman? Never. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about Cornelius Vanderbilt, because I, I, I don't think all of our listeners necessarily know why this guy is a name that you've heard of, um, mm. aside from the fact that he's wealthy. He is one of those guys like Morgan or Rockefeller. You hear the name a lot, um, but you don't know much except that he's rich. So uh, we're going to do our brief history today about the life and times of Commodore Cornelius Vanderbilt. Vanderbilt was born on a farm in Staten Island in 1794, which would have made him about 75 at the time he met Victoria and Tenney, and more than 40 years older than the sisters. Now, nothing against a 75-year-old man, but that might shed some light on just how sexual their contact was. (laughs) At 16, he made a deal with his mother to plant eight acres of corn in exchange for $100, and bought a ferry boat to bring passengers back and forth between Staten Island and Manhattan. Wait, wait, say that again? He made a deal with his mom? He traded money and corn with with his mom? Yeah, he said he would plant eight acres of corn for her if she'd pay him $100. Oh, okay, I totally did not hear that right. <laughs> so he sort of got a, she fronted him the money to do this Yeah, labor. that makes sense. Okay. And then he took that money, bought a ferry boat, and that was the beginning of his business empire. He uh, made a boatload of money during the, uh, there you go, oh, War no. of 1812. <laughs> uh, so during the War of 1812, he ferried soldiers back and forth, uh, as well as supplies for the army. So he made a lot of money off of the United States military. By the age of 21, he was running his own freight business, and then he became an expert on steamships and invested early in the transition from sailboats to steamboats. After gold was discovered in California, he began moving miners between New York and San Francisco and earned his nickname, the Commodore. While traveling with his family on his private yacht in Europe in 1853, he left his company in the hands of two men uh, with power of attorney, and they proceeded to sell themselves a controlling interest in the company. Uh, so you see what's going on. So he goes abroad and he says, you guys can run my company, and then they try to screw him while he's gone. Yeah, I can't do that. But when he came back, he didn't sue them. Instead, he turned his yacht that he had used to go to Europe into a passenger vehicle. And this is not, a, not no lie. He ran them out of business. Mm, that's pretty Using good. just his yacht. That's yeah, petty. I like that. And just with his <laughs> yacht, he basically destroyed his own business empire that he had built before and started huh. over. Jeez. <laughs> In eight, so he's, he was badass. Vanderbilt was not Yeah, I'm getting around. like he Mozart vibes deal. from this dude, like low-key. <laughs> he knew what he was doing. In 1864, at the age of 70, he focused his efforts on Wall Street, buying up controlling interest in a series of railroads and then consolidating them into the New York Central and Hudson River Railroads, which made him the richest man in America. He was a man of deep contradictions and, like most rich people, could be a jerk. He created illegal cartels to set the price of goods, stopped all rail traffic into and out of New York to settle a business dispute, and manipulated stock prices. And he had his wife committed to an asylum for two years when he disagreed with her. Oh, man, you lost me. (laughs) Wait, they just disagreed and he just sent her away? In the 19th century, you could definitely do this, especially if you were the man in the relationship. Wallpaper. Didn't take much to send any of your relatives to the asylum. Oh, oof. <laughs> in the later 19th century, this is like the boom time for asylums, too. So it, it just became like the it thing to send your relatives to an asylum. A little bit like nursing homes now. <laughs> just Sad. send them to an asylum. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you did, yeah. You would send your like old, elderly, infirm relatives to the asylum. Everybody went to the frenzy. asylum. Everyone was huh. in frenzy. <laughs> <laughs> so... Vanderbilt was a hard-swearing, rags-to-riches kind of guy who was often not welcome in polite New York society, which endears him to me. 
He was even known to pummel the couple of people he found irritating until they fell unconscious. Okay. <laughs> Honestly, same. <laughs> <laughs> but he also made big donations to worthy causes, including what's now called Vanderbilt University in the state of Tennessee and the Union Army. I don't think there's any coincidence there. During the Civil War, he donated his 900,000 ship, the Vanderbilt, to the Union cause to oppose the ironclad Confederate Merrimack. So, you, you see, you got to sort of take the good with the bad when it comes to Cornelius Vanderbilt. He's uh, helping the Union to defeat slavery. He's beating up morons in polite New York society. And he's <laughs> committing his wife to an asylum. <laughs> so, yeah. good and bad, good and bad. The duality. Yeah, the, of, of us all, the two sides. Mm. Uh, and that's a brief history of the life and times of Cornelius Vanderbilt. Huh. Fun dude. Well, maybe not fun, but interesting. Yes. Interesting, <laughs> interesting yeah. guy. Yeah, definitely an interesting guy. He's, he's, you'd like to have him at your, at your cocktail party. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, he'd yeah, be fun. Yeah. Jacob will be doing the serving. He's the cocktail waitress. <laughs> yeah. He's the cocktail waitress. <laughs> <laughs> So, trading at least in part on Vanderbilt's advice, Tenney and Victoria survived a major panic at the markets, um, which was called Black Friday of 1872, and their reputations skyrocketed. There's a great story from this period where Victoria and Tenney are dining together at Delmonico's, one of the fanciest restaurants in the city. Welcome to Delmonico's fine dining restaurant. Today's specials include... <gasps> Pigeons comport, pork griskins, mock turtle, duck a la mode, larded oysters, florentine of rabbits, cod sounds like little turkeys, pompadour cream, stewed cardoons, snipes and savory jelly, crawfish and savory jelly, potted lampreys, roast woodcocks, burnt cream, pickled smelts, sheep's rumps and kidneys and rice, lamb's ears forked, ox palates, and transparent soup. Two soups, please. In the 1870s, women weren't allowed to eat out without a male companion, so the manager came up to ask when their gen gentleman companion would be joining them. They said they were dining alone. The manager was scandalized and said they would have to leave. So Tenny went outside and got their cab driver and brought him in and sat him down. Three soups, please. Victoria and Tenny used the money they were making as stockbrokers to fund a newspaper, the, which they called the Woodhall and Claflin's Weekly for Victoria and Tenny's last names, respectively. Victoria kept canning Woodhall's last name for the duration of her life. So I guess unlike you, Olivia, she did not want to be Victoria Blood. I don't get that. <laughs> she lost me there. Can't, can't relate. <laughs> Why would she want to keep the... I mean, I guess because she's already made, like, enough, like, of a name for herself on that name, right? Yeah, it's sort of like that. It's She's a public figure. So it's like when an actress right. gets married and she yeah. keeps her name. The actress doesn't take the husband's name. Kind of sucks because he was a shitty dude. Right. Well, what can you do? Yeah. They published uh, an account of spiritualist trance lectures, or multiple accounts of spiritualist trance lectures, also reviews, including the infamous criticism of Emma Harding Britton's Art Magic, which we discussed in our last season, as well as socially radical editorials and reports. They advocated for women's rights, also worker rights. They published the first English translation of the Communist Manifesto, and they got tangled up with a social reformer named Stephen Pearl Andrews, a major advocate for marriage reform and free love. Woo! Free love! Free love oh, and communism. <laughs> Woo! My two favorite things. <laughs> Nothing like communist free love. We all wear the same overalls to make sweet, sweet love. <laughs> I love that part of the manifesto. It's my yeah. favorite part. <laughs> make sweet, sweet agriculture and manufacturing. Woodhull traded her newly prominent position for a role in the women's rights movement and through some clever backdoor dealing managed to get an invitation to speak to a congressional committee on the subject of women's right to vote. This is really fascinating because this was something that none of the major suffragists led by people like Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, had been able to do. The argument she made was a novel one. Woodhull said most suffragists were arguing for a new amendment allowing women the right to vote, but she said that the 15th Amendment had already guaranteed women the right to vote, and so no additional legislation needed to be passed. The 15th Amendment had been passed after the Civil War. It was intended to allow black men the franchise. The right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. The Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. The language of the amendment says that the right 
of citizens to vote shall not be denied, and this is what Woodhall focused on. Women, both white and black, belong to races, although different races. A race of people compromises all the people, both male and female. The right to vote cannot be denied on account of race. All people included in the term race have the right to vote, unless otherwise prohibited. If women were citizens, then their rights should be guaranteed. Simple as that. The argument didn't fly, though. But the fact that she was able to make it to Congress at all thrust her into the middle of the women's rights movement. People like Stanton and uh, Susan B. Anthony accepted Woodhull, but they did it reluctantly for, for several reasons. To begin, she had a kind of upstart quality to her that rubbed them the wrong way. Uh, and then there was all that free love talk she got up to, which they weren't really on board with. Uh, it wasn't like the like spiritualism stuff? Actually, the spiritualists and the women's rights movement got along pretty well. They there was reasonable overlap between them um, because, mm. you know, as we talked about, the uh, yeah, mediums were sense. public figures and often female, so they elevated women's position in society. Um, politically, spiritualism wasn't so awful, just... Uh, you know, when it came to the science, things got a little hinky. It's around this time that Woodhull started her speaking engagements and was subsequently nominated by the Equal Rights Party to be their candidate for president. She ran alongside the great abolitionist and speaker Frederick Douglass. But by all accounts, he may not have even known or cared that he'd been nominated. <laughs> cool. <laughs> the Equal Rights Party just go went ahead and nominated him as the VP and they didn't even call him. He was just doing his thing. Yeah, <laughs> just carrying yeah. on. Uh, like the congressional address, the candidacy went nowhere, but it caused a stir and kept Woodhull in the spotlight and pushed her progressive agenda, which revolved around the fair treatment of women. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. As you well know, I am not much given to the habit of conforming to convention. The whole surface of humanity is surging like the billows of a stormy ocean, and it only escapes the general and destructive rupture because its composition, like the conscious of its constituent members, is so elastic. But anon, the restrained furies will overcome the temper of their fastenings, and rendering them asunder will sweep over the people, submerging them or cleansing them of their gathered debris. Three years later, in 1875, she would be touring around the country delivering one of the last major speeches of her public career. And that's the one that I mentioned at the beginning. She'd refer to that speech and the system within it as the culmination of all her work as a medium and social reformer up to that moment. Her spirits had guided her to deliver unto humanity an elixir of life. So, to set the scene, between the 1872 presidential run and the time she's touring around with this speech, Woodhull has become one of the most controversial women in the country. Her audiences are comprised of both fans and hate watchers, some of which even attempt to argue with her as she speaks. Let me just give you some quotes from newspapers here, guys. Lately, when Mrs. Woodhull was to lecture at Newburgh, uh, a Baptist minister prayed at a public meeting that some grand catastrophe... Like the breaking of a bridge or collision on a railroad might prevent this Satan from entering their Eden. He's ready oh to gosh. have a shit ton of people die from a bridge or he, he something. Would rather. Better to save their eternal souls, Olivia. This is this is what you know you know what I'm thinking. Mm. I'm not even gonna say it. <laughs> <laughs> Oof. Uh, here's another one. She speaks her views fearlessly and without any regard for place or person, believing that she is doing that which will eventually lead to the elevation of her sex in all duties of life, which they are called to fill. That's a bit okay. more neutral. But you, you could see, that, I mean, it gives you a sense of what it was like. I mean, I, I would love to have heard her speak, right? Because fearless and, you know, great Satan and all these things. Um, Victoria Woodhall, here's the last one. Victoria Woodhall has at last consented to give addresses to women alone, being convinced that she can thereby reach some who would not otherwise hear her. So ultimately, her, her speeches were so sexy that they had to separate the men from the women sometimes because <laughs> oh. she was worried that the women weren't expressing their true feelings in front of their husbands. That's kind of cool. Frequently, uh, Tenney would open for her sister. In 1875, she would often perform a monologue from Shakespeare's Scottish play, and then Woodhall would emerge and go straight for the footlights. To what does modern marriage amount? If it not be to hold sexual slaves 
who otherwise would be free. The repression of law and a pretended public opinion and the resulting enforced and unwilling relations in marriage are already yielding their natural fruit. A growing disgust sexually between the sexes. For my part, I do not care what the remedy may be. I do not care if it be promiscuous sexual intercourse for both sexes and all ages. I do not believe it is possible for a woman to produce her best child except by the man whom she loves best and for whom she has the keenest sexual desire. Okay, so let's get around to the subject of free love here. Now is as good a time as any. Woodhull was a quintessential free lover. Uh, So we talked about this a little bit in our sex magic episode uh, in the last series. Divorce laws are really all over the map at this period, but they tend in the direction of keeping a woman from being able to easily separate from her husband regardless of how terrible he might be to her or her children. As far as sex is concerned, there is no such thing as marital rape in the 1870s, just to begin. So you can abuse your wife, you can you can beat her, uh, and you can also rape her. That's perfectly within the letter of the law, and there's nothing she can do to stop you or to get away from you. I mean, I guess she can run off, but it's difficult to support yourself as a single lady in 1870. A woman's body belonged to her husband, and he can force himself on her however, whenever he chooses. Woodhull's really an extremist on this front. She believes a man or woman should be able to dissolve a marriage at any time without consequence. We don't even really have that system right now. Divorce is still complicated. (laughs) So, uh, women's freedom is in service of women's pleasure. And this cuts both ways. Men are similarly entitled to be married to women they love and who they enjoy sexing up. There's a smattering of eugenics in the mix here. Woodhull believes that bad sex between unloving partners actually produces disabled children. Because remember her experience where she had a disabled child. That's an interesting take, but I can't blame her, I guess. It, it, it yeah. Uh, Go ahead, just Jacob. seems a little like a like a sticky argument, but yeah. <laughs> Hitler gave eugenics a bad name uh, for good reason. <laughs> <laughs> but we have to bear in mind in the late nineteenth century, the eighteen seventies, eighteen eighties, there was an argument to be made for the application of basically principles that were being used to breed dogs and cattle to humans. Like, why aren't yeah. we doing this with people? Why aren't we, you know, creating pairs that would create the most the genetically you know, fittest human beings. Because, you know, with Darwin and all, these are brand new ideas. So Woodhull's just sort of, again, playing the radical. She's on the very edge. And she doesn't anticipate the Nazis or anything here. She's not <laughs> she's not trying to institute fascism. Well, you can, like, there is the science to, like, pick eye color and shit, right? To some mm-hmm. extent, yeah, with those That's alleles and all. You, you guys are closer to having taken Bio 101 than I yeah. am in your lives. <laughs> <laughs> so so is that jacob is it alleles is that I what's involved i don't know i'm not i'm not a, so, nope something like that nope you don't remember you took chemistry no, I, didn't. I avoided that i took earth science <laughs> <laughs> same rocks yeah, so you have no idea <laughs> I, I probably advised you both you to take earth science. i loved that class i'm not alive <laughs> it was so much fun <laughs> All right, so uh, back to Woodall. This whole idea of free love fits into a much larger spiritualist occultist frame. The big picture is that women's sexual slavery and the loveless, pleasureless sex that has resulted from that are preventing an apocalyptic shift, which would lift humankind into a melding of the spiritual spheres. The spirits have been guiding Woodhull toward this ultimate revelation. Good sexual relations generate a spiritual energy that will actually open the door for the spirit's physical return to Earth. And bad sex has been keeping that energy from forming and keeping the door closed against them. Now, what does the resurrection, of which so much is said, in all so-called holy because inspired writings mean? Simply a return to physical life as thousands of spirits have been endeavoring to do for the last few years, and only partly and unsatisfactorily at best succeeding. The spirits are coming back to tear your damned system of sexual slavery into tatters and co-sign its blackened remnants to the depths of everlasting hell. I tell you, they will walk into your families and claim as their loves those who are held as slaves and carry them off before your very eyes. So there you go. The next time you're not getting your nut. You say, only good sex from now on. <laughs> or the spirits won't like it. Exactly. That's what I you say. You are preventing 
You are preventing the Earth from being elevated to the next plane. The age of Aquarius is literally being held That's, at bay with my orgasm. That is orgasm. word for word what I've told someone. He's that never going to get it up if you. Okay, yeah. <laughs> He's never going to get it up. There are many ways to get a woman all the way, Olivia, and you know that's true. I'm saying if you tell him all that, he's never going <laughs> to... Too much pressure. It's never going to happen, yeah. <laughs> too much pressure. That's all I'm saying. The... Don't give him that soliloquy and then expect, yeah. you know, fireworks. The only thing standing between me and spiritual enlightenment <laughs> is your cock. I want that on a t-shirt. Oh, my gosh. Visit our yeah. OnlyFans. Oh. <laughs> can you imagine an OC OnlyFans? I'll set it up for you all. <laughs> yeah, you I can. I actually can. <laughs> We need to get on that strategically placed logos. Oh my gosh. <laughs> cauldrons, strategically placed cauldrons. <laughs> the spirit's return in the form of psychic mediumship dating back to the Fox sisters is meant to blossom into a total convergence of spirits and humans. And if you're not being good to your woman, the spirits are going to swoop in and take her away to have spirit sex with her. Amen. I know that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so it, not only are you preventing the apocalypse, but you're risking a spirit just taking your your oh, w- wife away. Mr. A lot of people Steal are into that. Girl. That's a whole fetish. Cock. Ghost sex. Yeah, you never uh, been down really? this road. <laughs> yeah. I saw Dan Aykroyd do it in Ghostbusters. <laughs> oh, there. That's that's where that it started. I guess. That was my gateway too. That's it. Hmm. <laughs> that actually. What, you know? what, what is this fetish called? Because, you know, there's like furries. Oh, and... I don't remember. There is a name for it, though. Mm-hmm. I'm sure someone, I'm sure one of our people could tell us. I, I, li- I listened to a podcast on it like a long time ago. No matter when you hear this, I don't care how many years it is into the future. Write us and tell us what the name is for the ghost mm-hmm. fetish. Yeah. If I think of it, you know, I'll let everyone know somehow. <laughs> Now I'm going to ask our listeners to bear with us a bit because I'd like to take us down just a little bitty rabbit hole. Just a little one. This is actually not Woodhull's first lecture on the subject of free love and using free love to to, uh, initialize a spiritual apocalypse. In fact, it's her second. But it's a lot more comprehensible for the average person than the earlier one, which she called Breaking the Seals, also known as the Key to the Hidden Mystery. In this earlier lecture, she argued that there was a Kabbalistic key, Kabbalah, right, the, the ancient Jewish tradition, Kabbalistic key to the Bible, which would allow humans to discover the secret to eternal life through sexual union. The key revolved around an allegorical interpretation of the Genesis story in which the Garden of Eden is actually the human body, with rivers representing the various passages through the body, the Euphrates being the channels of reproduction, and the tree of life is also inside the body, if we can only figure out how to access it by changing our perspective on the reproductive channel. In the new heaven and earth, which are the new man and woman, to whom there shall be no more death, both the tree and the river of life, the male and the female elements, must be present. Not as men and women merely, but as sons and daughters of God. So we've got to put Woodhull in conversation with people like John Humphrey Noyes. Noyes ran a small commune of perfectionists in ODI to New York where they manufactured silverware and practiced coitus interruptus. You guys have heard me talk about this guy before, right? Yeah. Who? (laughs) Sorry, I just spilled water all over myself. What did you say? (laughs) John Humphrey Noyes and the Perfectionists and Coitus Interruptus. I remember that. So, do you know what Coitus Interruptus is? (sighs) What the common Uh, name is? Wait a minute. Uh, Wait, I remember this from last time. It's a birth control technique that I don't recommend. Oh, pulling out. Pulling out. Um, There you go. That's what it was. I thought it was so many other different things, and that wasn't one of them. (laughs) I almost thought edging for a second, but that's a whole other thing. (laughs) Yeah. So many fetishes. Noise believed that the second coming of Christ had already come and gone shortly after the lifetime of Jesus of Nazareth, and that heaven had been established on earth, but human beings just sort of missed it. Nobody realized that we were living in a perfected world. (laughs) If people would simply recognize that fact and start living like they were in a utopia, then we would have a utopia. That's everyone's problem in 2020. (laughs) We just, that's it. (laughs) 
<laughs> so Noyes had two big arguments about this. The one of them, uh, the, the second later one, was that if heaven was established on earth, there would no longer be a division between the living and the dead. The Fox sisters and the spiritualist movement proved that you could cross the line between the living and the dead. And so Noyes said, here it is. There is no death anymore. We can talk to dead people. And we could always do it. We just hadn't been doing it. His other point, his earlier point, was uh, that in a perfected heavenly earth, women would no longer be cursed with the burden of childbirth and people in general would not possess each other in any sort of monogamous way. And so the commune and coitus interruptus. So women and men could engage with as many sexual partners as they chose with the provision that the man never inseminate the woman. Pregnancy was the curse, according to Noyes. Now, I, there, there's some today we would have some debate it's about. It's ironic this. because pregnancy is the only time I feel like you're not experiencing the quote curse of being a woman. Oh, <laughs> the other yeah. curse. Well, that's what. It, yeah. So now Woodhull brought noise up by name in in this key to the mystery speech in order to refute this idea. Woodhull believed contra noise that pregnancy was a beautiful and natural thing and that a woman should look forward to this and enjoy it woman will never be emancipated from her slavery utterly until pregnancy like other things is governed by causative and not preventative willpower that is to say until children are the result of mutual desire of both parents and the creative act is entered upon to produce them. It will then be unnecessary to resort to unnatural methods of commerce to prevent pregnancies. There's this idea that women will be able to will their pregnancies and no longer lose unused eggs as they do in each menstrual cycle. The whole reproductive system. (laughs) Okay. So, uh, Olivia, listen close. Your whole reproductive system can follow Mm -hmm. your will. You can will it. You can use your occult will to control Mm. your ovaries. Mm -hmm. Will the ovaries. I'll work on that um, and let you know how that's going. Give you an update. The Kabbalistic truth is the transforming of the fruitful river whose waters now run in blood into a pure river, a water of life to be the healing of nations. The way by which the creative forces in man and woman are to be utilized made the elixir of life instead of as they are now, the curse of death. Now, there's some kind of secret in all this that Woodhull won't tell us about. She says you've got to read the Bible for yourself oh, and figure it out. Oh, there's the catch. That's but- the... <laughs> That's exactly what my family told me. <laughs> but were they talking about a sexual apocalypse in which you can control your sperm? No. The opposite, uh, probably. <laughs> it, it was, actually. Basically, a reconfigured sexual union conceived in love will transform both partners and literally cause them to live forever. Okay, that's fun. You wow. Live on sex energy. I could, I can get behind that. <laughs> Getting back to the elixir of life speech, Woodhull comes around to the social and political crusade that made her one of the most talked about people in the country. I have already said that the spirits engaged in this movement have concentrated all their power on a single individual, and that all the opposition has also centered there. And the fiercest battles has been waging for the past 18 months. It was at the point of being solved at that time ago, but the ignorance, weakness, and foolishness of the individual thwarted it. This individual is none other than Henry Ward Beecher, brother to Harriet Beecher Stowe and author of Uncle Tom's Cabin and one of the most famous abolitionist preachers in America. He worked from the Plymouth Church in Brooklyn, New York. Beecher used to hold mock slave auctions in his church to show both the cruelty of the system of slavery and to raise money to purchase slaves at Confederate auctions and buy them their freedom. Christ then raised men from religion as a bondage to religion as a freedom. I do not like the word religion, but we have nothing else to take its place. It signifies, in the original, to bind, to tie. Men were bound. They were under obligations and were tied up by them. Christianity is religion developed into its last form and carries men from the necessity to volunteeriness, from bondage to emancipation, 
It is a condition of the highest and most normal mental state. It is ordinarily spontaneous and free. Beecher was involved in an adulterous affair, perhaps one of many with a woman named Elizabeth Tilton. Now that name should sound familiar because at the very beginning of the episode, I was reading to you from a biography about Victoria Woodhull written by Elizabeth Tilton's husband, Theodore Tilton. Oh, it's like Peyton Place. Is that, do you not get that reference? It's like General Hospital. Uh, no, still no that's good. Some, I know what General Hospital yeah, is, okay. but you're like reaching. It's like Knott's Landing. Ooh, yeah, there's a, there's a deep cut. Ooh, that one's. What? <laughs> <laughs> These are all soaps. It's like ni- Beverly oh. Hills 90210. Yeah, I got it. Oh, okay. Right. <laughs> anyway, uh, so Theodore Tilton, writing the biography of Victoria Woodhull, married to Elizabeth Tilton, banging Beecher secretly. Um, and incidentally, Theodore Tilton and Elizabeth Tilton are members of Beecher's congregation. Uh, oh, so, juicy. Yeah. That's some tea. Elizabeth confessed the affair to her husband, who told prominent suffragists, this gets even more <laughs> convoluted, Elizabeth Cady Stanton, who in turn told Victoria Woodhull and Elizabeth Beecher Hooker, another of the pastor's sisters and another important figure in the women's rights movement. So the Beecher family was very prominent. We had Harriet Beecher Stowe. We also had Henry Ward Beecher and Isabella Beecher Hooker. Henry Ward Beecher had gotten into the habit of speaking out against Woodhull's free love movement from his pulpit in Brooklyn. Bad move. Because when she discovered his hypocrisy, she confronted him with it, and he promised to drop his attacks and join her at a free love speaking engagement where he would publicly declare himself an advocate for her movement. That would have been huge. Mm-hmm. Right? This big That's- name preacher. Politics are still the same, yeah. really. Yeah, it would be like if we got one of those mega church guys to come on a call confessions and be like, "Yeah, could Ron's you imagine? right about all this stuff?" I would, I would be impressed, <laughs> but also sad. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess it would sort of kill the yeah. fun that we're having, wouldn't it? At the last minute, the preacher didn't show. Oh no. Beecher, oh, Beecher stands her up. Wow. But Woodhull was not messing around. Disgusted, she went straight to her weekly newspaper and published on the front page a full report of his affair oh, with Elizabeth yeah. <laughs> I know that's right. <laughs> Even Elizabeth's husband, Theodore, had begged her not to publish this. <laughs> he said, woman, please. Watch me. <laughs> Yes, but this, but she was on a mission and she did it. She believed sincerely that Beecher could have been the one to help her usher in a new era of free love. And so his failure to show was completely and utterly and bitterly disappointing to her. So she was, yeah, she was vengeful, really. I get that. Yeah. We a love woman to scorned. see it, though. <laughs> I wonder what her sign was. The Plymouth Church let Beecher off the hook. Think about that, right? So she there's this huge expose about how the pastor is sleeping around with members of the congregation who are married, and the church is like, yeah, just don't do it again. But here's who they excommunicated, Theodore Tilton, the guy he was <laughs> cuckolding. Wait. He, he Yes. What? <laughs> the man he cucked got excommunicated from the church, and the church kept him around. That's why you can't <laughs> be a cuck. <laughs> this made Tilton... Super. So Tilton got pissed, right? And then he sued Beecher for what's what was called alienation of affection, what? which is what? just <laughs> sleeping with somebody else's wife. That's an incredible that's, name. That's alienation of affection. That should just be like adultery. Yeah, that should just be what like any kind of cheating scenario well, is just hold up, called. Let me call it alienation. <laughs> yeah. Or you just have alienated time. my yeah. affection. <laughs> The next time Ryan doesn't want to let you have like the last bit of ice cream in the bowl, you just scream alienation of affection at him. You've been served. I'm going to sue your ass. <laughs> <laughs> it's my ice cream. Did you finish this? The jury failed to reach a verdict in the trial of Tilton v. Beecher, and Beecher essentially got away with it. To this day, despite the fact that this affair was on the cover of most major newspapers for years after Woodhull broke the story, Beecher is generally only remembered for his abolitionist work and not for his opposition to free love and the scandal it caused. So his name does come up in history books yeah, for I, these mock slave auctions. I wrote about him no. in class, about him. but I didn't, I didn't know. Did I didn't really? remember that he was like connected to the free love stuff. Well, I, when I did my, I did do something on the Octoroon and he got brought up in my research, but yeah. 
So shortly after publishing about the affair, things began to go very badly for Victoria Woodhall. She was brought up on charges of sending obscene materials through the mail. This was really a, a clever moment in the history of American Puritanism. So I say that both with respect and disdain. So uh, the prosecution of speech, particularly in the press, was relatively well protected up until Anthony Comstock came around with his New York Society for the Suppression of Vice, which actually was a splinter group out of the Young Man's Christian Association. Young Man, I'm talking about the YMCA. I thought you were about to break into song for a second. I was like, he's going for it. Where's the outfits? Yeah, so it was the YMCA. I'm wearing one. I'm currently dressed as the uh, construction worker for this episode. I always forget that the YMCA was like a men's group. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. I just always, you know. It's not just a steam room where gay guys can hang out and sing. (laughs) They just. (laughs) Uh, I have so many comments, but no, I'm not going to say any. (laughs) (laughs) Jacob, your people, your people (laughs) made it a point to let us know this in the 70s. They got up on stage, they dressed in multiple different costumes. And when they were done, they told us what it was like to be in the Navy. <laughs> the good old days, I guess. <laughs> the good, well, yeah. In a way, yeah. they were the pioneers of sexual liberation. Different pioneers. Victoria was also a pioneer, so it's good that we're talking about the village people I'm going to well. have this in my head the whole rest of the day. <laughs> <laughs> so Comstock was... Okay, so back to Anthony Comstock. So Anthony Comstock is this you know, American Puritan. He is about to destroy free speech. He was a postal inspector, and he managed to get a series of laws passed criminalizing the content of certain materials going through the mail. This law actually lasted a very long time, and it would, would um, result in the prosecution of a variety of like pornographers and stuff because they would send it through the mail. After the Beecher Tilton article came out, he ordered several copies of Woodhull and Claflin's Weekly under an assumed name and then came in to bust up the Weekly's office, turning it upside down for charges of misusing the mail because you weren't allowed to send pornographic material in the mail etc etc victoria and tenny were thrown in jail also colonel blood the interesting thing is they were not prosecuted for this big article about henry ward beecher and tilton elizabeth tilton it was on the front page they were prosecuted for a little expose by tenny which appeared 13 pages into the newspaper it was the story of a man named Elsie Chalice, a prominent society figure in the habit of debauching young women and then discarding them at brothels to live their lives out as prostitutes. Great guy. Tenny and Victoria. Sounds great. Yeah, what a character, right? Love him. What a, yeah. That little scamp. <laughs> I mean, you get. You, do I have to walk you yeah, through that? I mean, no. it, it's, it's a basic situation where, you know, if you're a, a young virgin and, and this guy comes and he's going to yeah. lavish you with wealth and gets you drunk. And then and once then you're like, de-virginized, you're no good to the rest of Christian the humanity. The corpse bride, kind of. Uh, you got, yeah. <laughs> Just kind of. I mean, she like, he's like, I'm going to marry you and I have money. And then she's like. Woo! And then she like goes oh, to meet okay. him after they have sex, and then he's like, "Die!" And then he takes her money. <laughs> Tenny and Victoria mm-hmm. went on to spy, uh, went to spy on Chalice at a high society party where he'd brought two teenage girls to entertain him and his friend. As usual, they got the girls drunk, brought them back to a brothel to continue the party. They were taken to the house of a woman we will call Molly, a first-class house of prostitution where they were robbed of their innocence. Each of these scoundrels taking one to himself, and this scoundrel chalice, to prove that he had seduced a maiden, carried for days on his finger, exhibiting in triumph the red trophy of her virginity. After a few days, these lotharios exchanged beds and companions, and when weary of this, they brought their friends to debauch these girls. Mere children. The little tidbit about bloody fingers was what pushed Comstock over the edge. Woodhall had a fairly short trial, which she won. After being thrown in jail, Woodhall was released when her lawyer demonstrated that the Bible contained more or less the same sort of material found in the Chalice article. For example, Abraham's nephew beget children by his own daughters, uh, the whores of Babylon rose out of the ocean, etc., etc., with their many breasts. <laughs> so, <laughs> so come on, said, said Victoria's lawyer. C- come on now. Uh, And he wondered if every Bible distributor, this was really his argument, if every Bible distributor should be imprisoned Mm. for Comstock's law. Good argument. Because they're mailing Bibles around, right? Then she was jailed again on charges of libel 
This now from L.C. Chalice, the guy who went around sticking his fingers up girls, virgin girls. So this is really an incredible moment in American history. Woodhull knew that the cops were coming for her with this second charge, but she had a speech to deliver that night on the conditions in the Ludlow Jail, talking about criminal justice system and how to reform the jails because there are these horrible places and justices that were being done against her through the state. Like It was this big speech she was going to give. So a whole crowd gathered to watch her. And the cops gathered, too. So these people were also anticipating seeing the arrest of Victoria Woodhall. They waited, whispering over whether or not the great lady would show and get arrested. And then this little hunched-over old lady started making her way through the crowd. Folks moved aside to let her through out of respect for her age. And when she got to the front, she leapt up on the stage, threw off the shawl, and bam— she, it was Victoria Woodhall. She said, surprise, <laughs> she said, surprise. bitch. <laughs> Thought you seen the last of me. Was... <laughs> I'm glad we both went there, Jacob. Uh, I'm glad we did, too. <laughs> so the crowd was like went wild and closed in around her so the cops couldn't get to her, and she ended up delivering her speech. <laughs> so badass. <laughs> She's just flipping off the cops the entire time. She's like, <laughs> My friends and fellow citizens, I come into your presence from a cell in the American Bastille to which I was co-signed by the cowardly servility of the age. In my person, the freedom of the press is assailed and stricken down, and such has been the adverse concurrence of circumstances that the press itself has tacitly consented, almost with unanimity, to this sacrilegious invasion of one of the most sacred civil rights. This triumphant moment would be one of Woodhull's last. Comstock's thugs had destroyed most of her property. The two trials had put a significant strain on her cash flow, and she was forced out of public life. She divorced Colonel Blood on amicable terms, and the Commodore's son gave Victoria and Tenney some money to sail for England, where they both started their lives over. They both married British nobility, and although Victoria made a second entirely symbolic run from pres- for president all the way from England, her time on the American public stage had come to a close. The new element that the spirits require for the purposes of more effective and permanent materializations is a spiritualized sexual aura to be exhaled by the perfect blending of the sexes in the highest and divinest relations known to humanity. The conditions requisite to develop this element reside without question in many individuals, many pairs of individuals, and without doubt, Various temporary exhibitions of the perfect unity of these conditions have occurred, which, had there been unlimited freedom for their existence, might ere this have evolved into what is required. Hence, the triumph over slavery in all its forms must be before these conditions can be and continue. And that's my story of Victoria Woodhull. So how about about that? What a good story. Hmm. Yeah, neat lady, right? I mean, sort of a sad ending, uh, but but she's she seemed pretty sick. <laughs> I feel like every most badass women have a little bit of a sad ending. Yeah, yeah, that's true. you know, she should really be better known, though. It, it annoys me that more people don't know who Victoria Woodhull is. Like her radical politics, she should be like the hero of of uh, American radicalism today, but not so much, especially progressivism and sexual politics and all this. Mm-hmm. Like. She was in on front in the front of all these issues, but you know, there's a statue statue to Henry Ward Beecher, but there is not but a statue even, to Victoria Woodhull anywhere, as yeah, far as I know. Well, even well, just like the fact it. that we don't bring up her name in like history classes in school, kind of like blew my mind when you like mm-hmm. first told like you know that she like ran for like kind of, but you know, ran for president. Like that's just crazy. Like I think yeah. There's a couple reasons for that. I mean, in the first place, her, her run for president's question because she wasn't old enough to be president at the time. She would have been old enough I to mean, be president still. after she got elected, not during her run. She was not nominated by a major party. Um, but yes, she did run for president. She did speak to Congress. She was the first to speak to Congress on the subject of women's right to vote. Uh, she was the first woman stockbroker. Like, there's a lot of firsts in her career. I'm just saying, we talk about, mm-hmm. you know, other. I mean, not rarely we talk about other women in, like, the suffrage movement in history classes, but, like, never her. 
I think what you said yeah. earlier, Olivia, about occultism and spiritualism and how that, that could be a reason why her, her place in history, I, I think that's now today, looking back, her association with occultism and spiritualism kind of like muddies her reputation. She's not as clean a figure as Elizabeth Cady Stanton yeah. or Susan B. Anthony. So a lot of the mediums, Cora Richmond and... Uh, you know the the variety the ch- the trans mediums Emma Harding Britain like these folks are not very well remembered although they were leading feminist icons it's just they so that they happen to talk to dead people that one small detail just got them like ripped out of history right? <laughs> BS well we're putting them back yeah, in yeah that's right right here and now that's right yeah that's what we're here for yeah all right all right Olivia bring us on home. I hereby adjourn and declare closed this meeting of the Secret Order of Alchemical Actors till such a time as we get together and do it again. Our voices today included Lucy Bonds, Savannah Verrett, Sean Priest, and Brandon Walls. We want to remind everybody to uh, hop on and uh, and get yourself an Occult Confessions t-shirt if you haven't yet. Yes. And also consider joining us on Patreon. Please do. Please join us. <laughs> Joining me in discussion today uh, was Olivia Litterall, our Grandmaster of the Order. Goodbye, everyone. Also, Jacob Wheatley, uh, man in the Order. Man in the Order. <laughs> <coughs> mm, yes, it has been an honor and a oh, I thought pleasure. I going to say a privilege, but, you know, I'll take that. It was a pleasure. No, just, pleasurable. just a pleasure, not a, not privilege. a privilege. It's important that it's just pleasurable pleasure. because otherwise the spirits are never going to come back. Oh, right. Exactly. It's very topical. (laughs) All about the pleasure. (laughs) Uh, So join us next time as we continue uh, the exciting story of Lady Magic Through the Ages uh, with an episode on I Have No Idea What. (laughs) Woo! (laughs) Goodbye! Catch you next time. (laughs) 